MSW Media. I signed an order appointing Jack Smith. And those who say Jack is a fanatic. Mr. Smith is a veteran career prosecutor. Wait, what law have I broke? The events leading up to and on January 6th. Classified documents and other presidential records. You understand what prison is? Send me to jail. Hello and welcome to episode 48 of Jack, the podcast about all things special counsel. It is Sunday, October 29th, 2023. I'm Allison Gill. And I'm Andy McCabe. Okay, we have a <laughs> lot to go over today. It's going to be a six-hour episode. No, I'm, <laughs> I'm just kidding. It's not going to be that long. But we do have a lot this week, including a series of filings and responses in both Florida and D.C., uh, more details about what Donald Trump shared with Australian cardboard magnate Anthony Pratt, and a denial of the media's request to televise the D.C. trial. Yes, and we also have another subpoena being withdrawn by Jack Smith, in addition to the one we talked about last week. This time, it's from the Trump campaign, and we have a hearing date for all of the motions you mentioned. Andy, um, where should we start? Well, before we get to the filings, why don't we go over some top headlines from the week? And let's start with um, the first blockbuster of the week. The ABC reporting that Mark Meadows was granted limited use immunity in exchange for his testimony before Jack Smith's grand jury. Yeah, that's a good place to start because the initial reporting just said immunity. And then I, you know, a lot of um, people, including myself, pointed out are you sure it's not just limited use immunity? They didn't really go into too much detail, but then they, um, it's uh, Falders, right? She put out another uh, story getting right to the point of it that it is actually limited use immunity. So yeah, let's let's talk about that first. So let's start, well, of course, this all goes back to our episode on the Ocho Nostra, which folks will <laughs> remember having named it that. Um so those were the eight defendants who refused to testify on privilege or Fifth Amendment grounds back in the spring before uh, Trump was indicted. Meadows informed Smith's team that he repeatedly told Trump in the weeks after the 2020 presidential election that the allegations of significant voting fraud coming to them were baseless. Now, Smith's investigators were keenly interested in questioning Meadows about election-related conversations he'd had with Trump during his final months in office. Meadows privately told Smith's investigators that to this day, he has yet to see any evidence of fraud that would have kept now President Joe Biden from the White House. And he told them that he agrees, agrees with a government assessment at the time that the 2020 presidential election was the most secure election in U.S. history, which, as you know, all these claims, all these supposed beliefs, newfound beliefs, maybe old, old oldly had beliefs of Mark Meadows, all contradict things that he wrote in his own memoir, The Chief's Chief. <laughs> Yikes. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I mean, there's so many, there's so many aspects of this. Let's start with just a couple of points on immunity, because as you uh teed this up, there's a lot of confusion around it. There's different types of immunity. I think we did finally get some clarity, as you mentioned, that this is actually limited use immunity. Um, and so there are two different types, substantive types of immunity. Limited use immunity, of course, means 
Uh, it's immunity given uh, to a witness, and it precludes the prosecutors from using those statements that the witness provides the prosecutor with. The prosecutor can't use those statements against the witness uh, criminally. Technically, doesn't prohibit the prosecutors from prosecuting the witness. They just can't use the statements as a part of the prosecution. Now, the opposite of that is what we call transactional immunity. Transactional immunity means you can't be prosecuted for any of the offenses or the conduct that you talked about. So it's much broader. It's generally more valuable to witnesses than simple uh, limited use immunity. We think that's not what Meadows got here. Uh, an interesting fact I, I had the opportunity to discuss with a, a trusted uh, friend and outstanding attorney that I know. There's another little breadcrumb here that sheds some light on this. So he was reporting to me that he had seen, in some of the reporting, refers to a court's order of immunity in this case. And that would go to this question of formal or informal immunity. So formal immunity or statutory immunity is the same thing, two different names. That refers to immunity that traces its way back to a law, an act of Congress that grants people immunity. And in those cases where it applies and the prosecution typically moves for it, asks the court to apply it, the court applies it by signing an order. The judge orders that the witness or the defendant, whoever, has formal or statutory immunity by law. Informal immunity is the kind that we typically see, and that's when you get immunity because you just cut a deal with the prosecutors. It's, like, it's almost like a contract. The big difference here is informal immunity doesn't really bind, isn't binding on the states. So you could have an informal immunity agreement, like a limited use immunity agreement with federal prosecutors, but that wouldn't stop uh, a state prosecutor from coming after you. Formal immunity is the opposite. It applies everywhere. If you have statutory formal immunity, uh, you can't be prosecuted anywhere for that, that conduct that's referred to there. So we don't know exactly which Meadows has, but if the reporting is correct that it is his immunity was actually ruled on by a judge, then it's formal and it would be pretty powerful. Um, so question... But I mean, even if it's formal, he can still be prosecuted, just not with the statements that he makes because it's limited immunity. Is that right? You know, this really gets into the details of like what stat, what what statute is is creating uh, is the source of the immunity, and that's where you'd have to go to resolve this. Obviously, we don't have enough details to to figure that. out. What kind out. of statutes are there that grant immunity? There's all kinds of ones: the Atomic Energy Act, the DOJ. Criminal Resource Manual. Here, I'll give you. I'll give you the uh, quote right from the uh, Resource Manual. I love how you just like have it ready. Is it just an open tab on your computer all the time? I look at this thing every day. I mean, it's just <laughs> <Awesome>. like <laughs> it's a dog-eared paper copy <laughs> of the Criminal Resource Manual, not just a page on my Google uh, search that I was looking at before the show. Uh, an important difference between statutory slash formal immunity and informal immunity is that the latter is not binding on the states. That would be the uh, informal immunity. This follows from the fact that the local prosecutor representing the state is normally not a party to the agreement between the witness and the federal prosecutor, thus cannot be contractually bound by the federal prosecutor's agreements. That makes sense, right? Right. If you got immunity because of you cooperated in a case, that protects you for that case with federal prosecutors, not going to protect you from 
oh, for instance, a case in Fulton County, Georgia. <laughs> right. But I guess who, you know, some folks are saying that it was Meadows's attorney that was asking for the immunity. Some folks say it was Jack Smith's office that was offering immunity in, in a limited use manner. Because you remember what the Ocha Nostra you know, they all went to Judge Howell and then Bosberg after he took over as chief judge uh, overseeing grand jury proceedings that, you know, Jack Smith was like, no, you don't have privilege uh, and went and, and fought that fight in the courts and then was able to get those folks all back in to testify fully uh, before the grand jury. So I don't know how this immunity came up or who requested it, but it it, it seems it doesn't make sense that like, why would Jack Smith, just to get, you know, information from him about discussions he had with the president, specifically discussions that he lost the election and that there was no voter fraud. I mean, given the mountains of other people and other evidence that show that there was no voter fraud and that Trump knew it, you know, I, I don't feel like Jack Smith would necessarily need these statements from him. But again, I we don't know what else, you know, there's only a few things in this ABC report that that um, uh, Meadows testified to pursuant to that uh, order or that immunity, that limited use immunity. But I, you know, I'm just I'm trying to game it out in my head. Who asked for it and why? And and does it, you know, does it uh, can it screw up the whole case uh, against Meadows, at least because, you know, he's not one of the unindicted co-conspirators in the Trump indictment. I think that's a huge so. point. I, I think that all of this telegraphs that Jack Smith doesn't really have an intention to pursue Meadows criminally. Uh, you know, and the biggest sign of that was the fact that he was very clearly not referred to as an unindicted co-conspirator in the Trump indictment. He is actually named or his position is named. He's referred to as chief of staff, whatever. Um, so he's being handled, thought of, referred to differently than these other people who are being called out as not indicted here, but, you know, maybe in the future. So without getting too bogged down in what I've already bogged us down on, any witness who you give immunity to, whether it's limited use immunity through an informal agreement around prosecution, which is what I suspect is involved here, or it's any of the other forms we talked about, it's exceedingly hard to prosecute people after they've received immunity. You have created a minefield of potential appellate issues and courts look very seriously at decisions that defendants make as a result of grants of immunity. So it's very hard, it's very hard. Uh, there's all kinds of legal issues that come up if you try to prosecute someone who previously had immunity, even if it was just limited use and you say, okay, I'm not gonna use the statements um, there's, it's, there's a minefield of other stuff that comes up. You know, the Oliver North case is a perfect example. That's right. kind of the classic. Um, so in any case, there. look, it, I had this even uh, myself with the many cases going after the Blackwater guards who were prosecuted for the, for the shootings at Niger Square in Iraq. That case took three rounds of investigation and, and trials before it finally got to um, sustainable convictions. And part of that was over witnesses who had been granted immunity to provide statements to the State Department and who were then prosecuted by prosecutors who were exposed to those statements. A little bit different, but kind of uh, an example of how hard that is to do. 
Yeah, it sounds to me like he's a potential witness uh, in in the March trial uh, in D.C. Potentially, um, he was called as much in the uh, in a filing that we're going to go over a little bit later about why the gag order should be sorry the limited gag order should be <laughs> Don't reinstated. Call it a gag order. <laughs> should be reinstated and added to the bail conditions uh, or conditions of release. So. You know, but it, it seems to me, at least my guess is that he's not going to be charged in D.C. And that this if it's a if it's a formal immunity, it could have make some issues down in Fulton County uh, for Meadows to be charged. But he's still on the hook as far as we know. Yeah. Uh, down there, he's still trying to fight to have his trial removed to federal court. Um, and it has several motions going on. So we'll see what ends up happening. But um, very interesting news. It it kind of goes toward the broader concept of this entire episode, which is the narrowing of these investigations. We've got subpoenas being withdrawn. We've got Meadows being granted a limited use immunity. Uh, and it seems like all of that is in consideration for the speediness of the trial of one Donald John Trump. Yeah, I think that's right. And every one of these decisions and moves has all kinds of follow-on impacts. I think two to worth pointing out while we're talking about Meadows is, so let's say he's in, he's a witness only in the federal January 6th case. Uh, number one, he is not, a, he's got a lot of problems. He's written an entire book basically of lies. Mm -hmm. And you're going to have, that's a case that's going to a jury not just a judge like we have going on in New York right now. And so that that's very tough to put on a witness who's lied um, as many times. And, and he also doesn't not, we're not aware of an actual cooperation agreement in this case for Meadows. So he hasn't pled guilty to anything. That's how federal prosecutors rehabilitate a witness who's lied. You have to plead guilty to a significant charge first, and then you can tell the jury, listen, you can count on everything they're saying because if they come up here and lie to you, he loses his cooperation agreement and the sweetheart deal and gets you know sentenced at a very high level. So you don't even have that here. So that's tough. And now let's think, number two, of what, what Meadows, one thing we know from the reporting, what Meadows did not say to the prosecutors was they asked him, had you ever, in all of your interactions with Trump after the election, did he ever acknowledge losing? And Meadows said, "No, I think he, I think he believed that he never, I never, you know, he never said that to me." That's really kind of shocking to me because Meadows is in that room for everything. He is elbow deep in these conspiracies. He's got more exposure to Trump than anyone, and he can't give them that, which would be very helpful. You know, not legally necessary, as we've talked about, but it would be great, a great piece of evidence to have. Uh, so that was kind of concerning to me that he's he's not going that far. But we'll see. Or he says he's not going that far because we know that yeah. this story didn't come from the DOJ. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, we'll see what ends up happening. The good, the good news is, is that Jack Smith will have to write a report on all this. So we will right. get to learn a lot from that report. All right. Next up, I want to talk about more information this week about what that Australian billionaire, Alexander Pratt, told Jack Smith's team. Now, you'll remember previously, we had discussed the fact that Donald had told him about the nuclear capabilities of our submarines, right? Like how close they could get to Russian submarines without yeah. being detected, stuff like that. Well, apparently there's more. 
This is from the Times. Another witness told prosecutors about hearing uncorroborated reports that Mr. Pratt spent $1 million for tickets to a Mar-a-Lago New Year's Eve gala, voluntarily paying the club a huge markup from tickets that actually cost $50,000 or less. And then when Mr. Pratt opened a new factory in Ohio that promised hundreds of new jobs, Mr. Trump toured the plant alongside the Australian prime minister. Now, Mr. Pratt, in turn, gained priceless publicity and proximity to the power of the presidency providing him entry into an administration whose policies lowered his taxes and benefited his businesses. Behind closed doors, however, Mr. Pratt described Mr. Trump's business practices as, quote, being like the mafia. That's according to covert recordings obtained by 60 Minutes Australia, shared with the New York Times. And on the recordings, Pratt recounts how Trump shared with him in December 2019 what he describes as elements of a conversation the president had with Iraq's leader, right after a U.S. military strike there aimed at Iranian-backed forces. And days later, a U.S. drone strike in Baghdad would kill Iran's top security and intelligence commander. And at one point, Mr. Pratt said Trump discussed the phone call he had with Zelensky of Ukraine earlier that year. You mean the perfect phone call? The perfect one, (laughs) the one that helped lead to Trump's first impeachment. And Trump said to Pratt, that was nothing compared to what I usually do. Okay, (laughs) so by the end of Trump's first year in office, uh, his presidency was bearing fruit for Mr. Pratt. The Australian Financial Review estimated that Trump's 2017 corporate tax cut helped increase Mr. Pratt's personal wealth by more than two billion with a B dollars. That's going to pay for a lot more parties at Mar-a-Lago. Apparently, (laughs) what is it? What is a New Year's Eve party like that costs a million dollars to go to? I mean, I don't know. That omelet bar. It's I hear it's pretty (laughs) good. (laughs) <laughs> but you got to wait for Trump to go read, first. You get to sit in the shitter and read classified documents, Andy. That's what Double you're cheese, please. Oh, my God. <laughs> Cold hamburgers. Yes. Um, wow. I, you know, this, this is fascinating reporting because it goes directly to the question we've all had about the documents since we learned about the documents, which is why did he keep the documents? You know, it, it's not a, a absolutely complete answer, but it sheds some light on this is what he wanted to do with that information. Use it to impress, use it as leverage, use it to curry favor, use it to vanquish his enemies. See Mark <laughs> Milley here. This You're seeing it happen. This is how you answer those questions. Yeah, agreed. And, and Jack Smith has said that he will prove the intent uh, using non-classified yeah. materials in the Mar-a-Lago case. So. That's right. So in addition to all that this week, we had this one really kind of landed like a punch in the nose for me. I don't know about you. Yeah, same. We know that Jack Smith has now withdrawn another subpoena. Last week, Washington Post had reported that special counsel had withdrawn his subpoena of the Trump Save America PAC. Well, this week from the New York Times, and I quote, Federal prosecutors have quietly withdrawn a subpoena seeking records from former President Donald J. Trump's 2020 campaign as a part of their investigation into whether Mr. Trump's political and fundraising operations committed any crimes as he sought to stay in power after he lost the election, according to two people familiar with the matter. So last week is a subpoena to the Save America PAC that gets withdrawn. This week, the subpoena to uh, the campaign gets withdrawn. What do you think? Um, it seems unlike him, you know? Um, it's, it, it, first of all, I'd be guessing if I said that it sounds like he just wants to avoid any First Amendment fight that he can. 
because there th- that would be the fight right for fundraising political fundraising and campaign emails is that it's protected by the first amendment um and it's you know protected speech and it just seems like at every turn jack smith just doesn't want to have that fight including in his main yeah. indictment in dc against only him so far yeah and so this looks like a narrowing uh or a or a we're finishing up this or you know we we we've decided whether because we couldn't get the facts together or the evidence, we couldn't develop the evidence or because of prosecutorial discretion, we're not going, it sounds like we're not going to go after fraud, uh, defrauding donors with the Trump America PAC and the, and the 2020 Trump campaign. Um, and you and I back in, oh gosh, it's almost been a year, Andy. Oh wow. my God, don't say that. I can't believe it. Time <laughs> flew. It, I think it was last December that we talked about this open and shut defrauding donors wire fraud case 20 years why you know and everybody was like all of these other lawyers were like nine times out of ten when you go after white collar criminals it's this kind of fraud yeah uh we we saw it with steve bannon we saw it with the we build the wall thing with him you know that just it seemed so open and shut but it you know and we still don't know why but like i said we will get a report and that report must include declination decisions they might (laughs) i hope it's not behind redaction bars but because this doesn't sound to me anymore like he's handing these off. It sounds like he wa- he's winding that down and he's not going to go after this. And I'm guessing it's because, uh, you know, past behavior shows that he doesn't want to have a First Amendment fight with Donald Trump. I, I think that could be true. I, I think it's also there are maybe and how much he considers these things, I don't know. But there are broader considerations around. Well, first of all, he would have to have the First Amendment fight now because Trump would raise it now in opposition to the subpoenas as like a motion to quash the subpoenas or something like that. So that puts this ugly uh, appearing and ugly having to have First Amendment fight with Trump in the middle of your prosecution of the bigger, more important case, which you in which you decided not to even raise any issue that could go in this direction. So it's like you get stuck with the First Amendment fight, even though you did almost everything to try to avoid it. So from that perspective, these subpoenas look like they could lead to a self-inflicted wound for the prosecutors. Right. That and and you've got him on, you know, 1512K and 1512C2, yeah. which are also 20-year max sentences. And the dude's not going to live more than 20 years. So That's absolutely true. And And it also feels a little bit like, now this is fairly political calculation. Not saying it would be improper if they thought about this, but we don't know if they did or not. But I'll just throw it out there. It would be to pursue the case against the PAC and the campaign in the middle of the campaign is another very politically provocative thing to do. And it may be that they just decided we got to focus our fire on the battle we absolutely have to win yeah. rather than getting bogged down in a sideline fight, which, which consequently plays in perfectly with Trump's strategy to say this entire thing, all these prosecutions, documents case, Jan 6, is really all about Joe Biden trying to interfere with his campaign. So in that, in that environment, you bring kind of a sideline fraud case uh, that doesn't speak really to the most important issues of what happened here and one that that runs the risk of provoking all these like really bitter legal fights that make the prosecutors look terrible. So that's that could be a legitimate prosecutorial discretion decision to say, hey, you know what? Let's let's live to fight another day in the in the battle that's worth fighting. Yeah, and I would say if if I was going to pick one, uh, I think that for the importance, 
the historical importance to our democracy, I would pick the January 6th case. So um, we'll see, though. We'll see what that report has to say. And that's going to be interesting when that comes out. And, and it'll be interesting to see when it comes out. Uh, I'm assuming after all of these trials are finished, yeah, but, but who knows? For sure. Um, one last story before we get to the court filings. This is from Politico. A federal judge panel has turned down a bid to allow live television coverage of two historic criminal trials for former Trump, former President Trump. Um, without apparent dissent, a committee that handles potential changes of the federal court's criminal rules concluded Thursday that it had no ability to alter the existing ban on broadcasting federal criminal trials, which is weird to me. Mm-hmm. And then they said, even if we did, the new rule wouldn't go into effect until probably 2026 or 2027. So um, that might be just in time for Judge Eileen Cannon's Mar-a-Lago trial. <laughs> it might be. Or it might give her a reason to delay the trial again just to think about it. Yeah, <laughs> this is this could have an impact on on this trial. I need two months. Um, <laughs> Counsel for the defense, don't you want to file a motion claiming this isn't fair? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> nudge, nudge, wink, wink. Um, so you know they said they'll look into it, but I, you know, this is the this is the panel that does that. I don't get how they don't have the ability to do it, but that's their decision. So. Yeah, I, I don't really understand it either. I think. Uh, I'm not surprised. I'm disappointed because I would have loved to seen it, but I am not surprised. I didn't see this this dam breaking on this case. Uh, I think that a lot of people, a lot of uh, people in the judiciary would have seen that as like, oh man, this isn't the case we want to start doing things different on. You know? Yeah, perhaps. Um, I don't know if that precludes the other motion in front of Judge Chutkin to televise the trial, um, because we're going to talk about that in a little bit. Um, but all right, uh, because she just put out a minute order, by the way, asking for Donald Trump's opinion on whether or not the trial should be televised. And so he will have to file that. And it'll be interesting to see what he has to say, because he has been asking for it to be televised, but he may not want it to be televised because if it's televised, he can't run his disinformation machine as well as he could if it were. So are we'll you saying that he that. might do something that contradicts what he just said? Oh, my God. That's a, <laughs> that's a really... Hey, uh, really hey wait until you see what the filings have to say. <laughs> <All right. laughs> and we'll get to those right after this quick break. Stick around. We'll be right back. Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis's first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA, as a first-time lawyer, I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler... How much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary... They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry. We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said, show me in a courtroom 
how we were at war. Expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is lawyers, guns, and money. So you have a man in Armani suit standing on the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th. Or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now. Welcome back. All right, Allison, let's get started with the D.C. filings and responses. So last week, we reported that Judge Chutkin had issued a narrowly tailored order limiting Donald Trump's pretrial extrajudicial statements. Don't call it a gag order. Uh, (laughs) Trump then, of course, notified the court that he intended to appeal the order and then asked for a temporary stay while he prepared his appeal. Judge Chutkin then issued a temporary stay on the gag order. So not a stay of the case, but just a stay of the application of the gag order. And she also required DOJ to file by uh, the 25th and Team Trump to file their response by 1028. So during the brief stay of the order, uh, Trump proceeded to post things on Truth Social that would be in direct violation of the order. And he violated a separate partial gag order in his New York civil fraud case. Yep. So our man Jack Smith, uh, of course, included both of these instances in his filing as evidence of the necessity of reinstating the order. And here are some excerpts from Smith's filing. So he says, the defendant has moved to stay the order pending appeal, insisting that he's entitled to target trial participants. So he's- <laughs> That's exactly what I said. I'm so glad he said that. Like, I, I put it out as a headline, like breaking Donald Trump wants the right to go after <laughs> intimidate witnesses and go after the prosecution. And I'm like, my headline sounds a little biased, but there it is in black there and white is. from Jackson. So I'm vindicated there. Uh, you are on the same mental wavelength as our uh, friends in the special counsel team. Okay, so Smith goes on to say, but because he has failed to show either a substantial likelihood of success on the merits or that the public interest weighs in his favor of a stay, the defendant's motion should be denied. Moreover, based on the defendant's recent social media posts targeting a known witness in this case in an attempt to influence and intimidate him, the court should lift the administrative stay and modify the defendant's conditions of release to prevent such harmful and prejudicial Conduct. So that's the new ask. DOJ wants Judge Chutkin to not only lift the stay on the order, but to add it to his pretrial conditions. And that would allow for detention and contempt as penalties. You will remember the pretrial conditions. Those are a standard part of the arraignment, right? You, The judge decides what the defendant can and can't do as the case is, is proceeding to trial. And it's typical, you know, don't intimidate witnesses, you know. Don't break the law. Don't break the law, stuff like that. And that's like important because it's the documented aspect of this, right? It's like, there it is in black and white. This is in my order. If Therefore, if you violate it, we're already down the road a bit so that I can impose sanctions or potentially throw you in jail pending trial. I mean, that's a would be a pretty big move here, but nevertheless, that's on the table. 
So then Jack Smith raises the New York civil fraud trial violations and outlines the fines that he's had to pay, that Trump's had to pay so far. He says, defense counsel also assured the court that the defendant's post targeting the court staffer had been, quote, dealt with by the court in New York. That assurance turned out to be mistaken. On October 20th, 2023, the presiding judge in New York fined the defendant $5,000 for blatantly violating the order in the case. Today, the defendant again violated the New York court's order when he stated that the judge had, quote, a person who's very partisan alongside him, perhaps much more partisan than he is, close quote. After the defendant claimed unconvincingly under oath that he had not been commenting on the court's clerk, the judge found the defendant not to be credible and fined him $10,000. That's like a double whammy of penalty. Not only am I taking your money, I'm saying on the record in court, as your judge, I find you to be a liar, (laughs) liar, pants on fire. (laughs) Yeah, I lied on the stand to the judge's face. That's what the judge determined. He's like, I'm sorry, I'm the trier of fact, and I don't find you to be credible. I'm the trier of fact, and I'm trying to find a fact, and I can't find (laughs) one in the things that you've said. Uh, Okay, so in the few days since the administrative stay has been in place, the defendant has returned to the very sort of targeting that the order prohibits, including attempting to intimidate and influence foreseeable witnesses and commenting on the substance of their testimony. For example, on October 24th, 2023, the defendant took to social media to respond to a news report claiming that his former chief of staff, identified in the indictment, has testified in exchange for a grant of immunity. And of mm-hmm. course, he, uh, Jack includes the post. The finally goes on to say that the order is narrowly tailored, it's not vague, and that the order was necessary and appropriate. The defendant's motion to stay should be denied. The court should also lift the administrative stay and modify the conditions of release. Trump's response has not been filed as of the recording of this episode. Yeah, I found it interesting that it was due on Saturday. Um, so we'll be covering it next week. I'm sure we will. I'm sure we will. It's, I mean, I love the part, this is kind of in their windup, you know, the order is narrowly tailored. That's to show the judge that it complies with first amendment requirements. It's not vague again, goes to first amendment requirements and that the order was necessary and appropriate. Yeah, it was necessary. He's been basically violating it <laughs> since you put it in place. We've given you five examples of violations in the last five days. And yeah, and you, the court, already determined it was necessary, and that's why you put it in place. That's why you wrote the order. Yeah. So, interesting. Um, now, let's go to another filing. These just, there's so many. Remember the Department of Justice filing that asked Judge Chutkin to require Donald Trump to submit his intent to use an advice of counsel defense to the court by December 18th. Yes. So that Jack Smith would have time to get all that 25 witnesses worth of stuff that had been considered attorney-client privilege before, get all that information, investigate it, and produce more uh, discovery. Yeah, have right. To, let's, they wouldn't- let's get out in front of this little time bomb while we can. Let's, you know, if he's going to go down this road, I got to get my ducks in a row and start doing some work so we don't create more delay. Yep. We have a March 4th trial date. So by December 18th, I think is a good time. And that's also when uh, I think evidence is due. And uh, Trump responded to that saying, that's unconstitutional. You can't ask me for that. Uh, And, but then in the same filing, he said, okay, but you should have asked for it sooner. And then by the end, he's like, all right, I'll give it to you in January. Well, Department of Justice has filed the response to that, to his January request. (laughs) 
And it's the same argument we discussed in the previous episode that Trump's lawyers told the world he intends to rely on advice of counsel. They went on all the Sunday shows and, uh, you know, said we're going to do a file, you know, advice of counsel. That's going to be our defense. So they're like, it's not a secret strategy. We're not, you know, get, making him confess to some sort of trial strategy before the trial. He, everybody, he said he's going to do it. But DOJ added a wrinkle in this particular thing. And I love this. Let me quote from this filing. If the defendant notices such a defense, there is a good reason to question its viability, especially because in the time since the government filed its motion, three charged co-defendant attorneys pleaded guilty to committing crimes in connection with the 2020 election. That's not co-defendant's <laughs> attorneys. It's co-defendant attorneys. Co-defendants <laughs> who are attorneys have already <laughs> pled guilty. So the people whose advice you would be relying on and now referring to as your defense, yeah, they've all just said they're all guilty of crimes <laughs> in the course of that advice. I feel like that defense is not going to go well for him, but I don't know. <laughs> no, it's it's not. He goes on to say, at the very least, those guilty pleas highlight the complications that may arise if the defendant should assert an advice of counsel defense and underscore the need to resolve all issues well before the start of trial. If disclosure is delayed, it may result in a disruption of the trial schedule. Yeah, I, I love highlight the complications. That's a very nice way of saying this defense is a flaming bag of dog poo. <laughs> It's not going to, there's nothing good. There's nothing good left here. So let's just dispatch with this now uh, and not use it as an excuse to delay the trial again. All right. So moving on in the uh, list of, of uh, entertaining filings this week, DOJ also responded to Trump's ridiculous demand to subpoena the quote, missing evidence from the January 6th committee. Uh, and we, of course, went over that filing in a previous episode. Here are some excerpts from the special counsel's office response. They state, the defendant asks for the court's permission to make vague early return document demands of four non-party legislative branch entities and three non-party executive branch entities, all in search of information regarding purportedly, quote, missing records from the House Select Committee to investigate the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol. The defendant's motion is wholly unnecessary. The government already provided the defendant in discovery the Select Committee records that he identifies with any specificity. In any event, the defendant's proposed fishing expedition in search of other purportedly, quote, missing congressional records fails to satisfy the requirement of Rule 17C subpoenas that they must be relevant, admissible, and specific information. The court should deny the defendant's motion. Mm. So Rule 17 says, I can't say, just give me everything I know you haven't given me. I know you're holding stuff back. You, you, yeah. you can't subpoena for that kind of a thing. Right. You can't say, I now demand all evidence of the fact that you are, in fact, an alien being. <laughs> And if you don't give it to me, that you're means like, you're withholding discovery. Oh, yeah. you're withholding. You didn't meet the discovery deadline for your alien evidence. Well, this uh, is kind of a, a pattern of behavior, a pattern of practice for the Trump administration and Trump allies, right? Like trying to demand stuff from the DOJ that doesn't exist and then right. saying they're the deep state for not providing of it. Of course, of course. I mean, this is this is kind of how they how they roll. Uh, so and I'm, I'm not surprised at this filing, but I think it's going to be laughed out of court. Yeah, we're... There's uh, and it's also important to put it in in context. Like, 
We all talked about this at the very beginning of these cases. Trump is going to do everything he can to delay these trials. We're there, right? That's This is what's happening. Yeah. Um, it used to drive me crazy when people would talk about when uh, during the Trump uh, administration, people would talk about, you know, we better watch out because um, if, you know, if things keep going this way, uh, he's going to try to really undermine the institutions of government. Like, no, it was already happening by then. It's like, we're not, you have to open your eyes to what's actually happening around you and, and put it in the right context. And this is the delay we were all worried about. File more motions about crazy things that don't exist. And then when they don't go your way, appeal them and then appeal the denial of the appeal. And it's just a constant barrage. It's like, um, you know, it's like the, it's like what the Russians are doing to Ukraine in Crimea. It's just dug in, sending, sending mortars, sending ordinance their way just to try to pound the special counsel's office into uh, having to respond to all this stuff. Yeah, and I think that's where lessons from the Mueller investigation come in handy, and, and Judge Chutkin is well aware of them, which is why she has set up a pretrial schedule that helps prevent those things from happening. And we're going to get to that right after this break, because in one night, Donald Trump filed four motions, three of them to dismiss his <laughs> there case. You go. There you go. Um, because they were all due that day uh, so that they can be dealt with in time to keep the March 4th trial date. She's She's very adamant about keeping that date. And I think that her pretrial schedule, uh, forcing pretrial motions for dismissal to be due on a certain day, is going to help with that. And we'll go over those those four motions uh, as soon as we take this break. Stick around. We'll be right back. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. Uh, let's stay up in D.C. Let's discuss the four additional motions that Trump filed close to midnight on the deadline for such motions. Four in the course of an hour, late on October 23rd. I think it was actually late on a couple of them, but I'm sure that's fine. Hey, now, three of these are- One motion for each indictment. Not really. Okay. <laughs> for each charge, yeah. Or each charge in this case. Uh, three of them are motions to dismiss. And one of them is a motion to strike language from the indictment. So let's start there with the motion to strike language before we get to the motions to dismiss. And this is separate and apart from his motion to dismiss on I am totally immune presidents or kings right. motion. Right. That's totally separate. We'll get to that in a minute. Told you this episode was full of stuff. Now, let's start with the motion to strike language from the indictment. The indictment includes repeated references to the actions of independent actors as the Capitol, at the Capitol on January 6, 2021. Because the government has not charged President Trump with responsibility for the actions at the Capitol on January 6th, allegations related to these actions are not relevant and are prejudicial and inflammatory. Therefore, the court should strike these allegations from the indictment. Now, the reason that January 6th is in the indictment is because it's relevant AF, uh, <laughs> Andy. In the um, technical definition of that term. Yes. <laughs> relevant AF. Look it up in your manual. Yeah. Um, no, it's it, it, the way that this indictment was uh, built is that his conspiracy to defraud the United States, obstruct official proceedings, conspiracy to obstruct official proceedings and conspiracy against rights have everything to do with all of the events that led up to and include the attack on the Capitol on January 6th and events that happened afterwards. That's 
all and all of that is evidence of these crimes. And so I think that this motion will be denied on those grounds. Um, you don't have to charge him with inciting an insurrection or seditious conspiracy uh, in order for those two events to be evidence of obstructing an official proceeding or conspiracy against rights to take our right to vote and have our vote counted taken away from us. It's part of the crime. It's part of the conspiracy. Uh, and I think that's why it's included. And I think that the this will be easily dismissed. I think it probably will as well. I think it's important to realize that the the reason for this is if language, if that if let's say a judge in this case it would be Chutkin rules that all references to the insurrection have to be stricken from the indictment, then that controls what sort of evidence you could get in at trial. So when the go- when the government is trying to get in any references to the insurrection at trial, the defense would be in a better position to oppose. Uh, to exclude that evidence from from the jury hearing it. Yeah, and this is good. This also has appeal written all over it. Yeah, so that's where it's like tactically significant to the defense. You know, let's face it. He's charged with conspiracy to obstruct an official proceeding. That official proceeding took place on January sixth on the Capitol. It's a little hard to talk about that outside without making any reference to the riot that was taking place. Um, right. But he'll, you know, he'll say yeah. I'm appealing this because they mentioned January, the riot of January 6th, but didn't charge me with it. And so therefore I'm, my conviction should be overturned. I mean, these are, these are yeah. all, these four, all, most of these motions are just bookmarks for appeals of uh, course. is what it feels like. You got to make the motion and have it denied to have something to appeal later. So that's what, yep. that's what it's for. If it went his way, which I don't think it will, it would help him in narrowing the playing field in terms of what sort of evidence the government could get in in their case in chief, but I don't think that's going to happen. Yeah. So the next motion he filed on the same night, busy little beavers over there on the uh, Trump legal team, is a motion to dismiss the case on statutory grounds. So the motion says, targeting an audience other than this court, the prosecution's indictment in this matter rants endlessly. How about the irony of Trump accusing someone else of (laughs) ranting endlessly? I mean, I couldn't even finish the sentence without... Stopping on that one. So anyway, the prosecution's indictment in this matter rants endlessly about the about President Trump's politics and in a shockingly un-American display of authoritarianism, projection, accuses him of crimes for having and expressing the, quote, wrong opinions. Buried at the end of this diatribe are conclusory statements that President Trump's alleged actions somehow violated 18 U.S.C. 241, 371, 1512K, and 1512C2. The prosecution does not explain how President Trump violated these statutes beyond simply saying he has while regurgitating the statutory language. As explained herein, the reason the prosecution employed this tactic is plain. President Trump did not violate the charged statutes, even accepting the prosecution's false allegations as true. Accordingly, the court should dismiss the indictment for failure to state an offense. Again, that's sort of tied into the, you need to remove the January 6th language, right? Yeah, it's just kind of nonsensical. I mean, indictments, I don't want to, I'll say 99% of the indictments I've read in my life are less specific than this one, right? (laughs) Indictments can tend to be very thin. Isn't that how an indictment works? Yeah, you don't make your whole case in the indictment. 
you just have to cite the statute you claim was violated and then provide some facts, some facts, a couple that support that allegation. It is intrinsically only an allegation. It's not proof of anything. It's almost like he said, all he did here was say a bunch of stuff I did and then talk about how it violated the statutes. Like, yeah, yeah that's or, <laughs> or, or, you know, they've just made a bold face assertion that I violated the law. And that can't be true because I now make a bold face assertion that I did not. Mm. I mean, it's oh, just, well. it's nonsensical. Well done. But again, you know, it's all part of the the bigger game of, creating issues to, to pursue on appeal and uh, creating delay. Yep, 100%. Now, the third motion he filed that night was a motion to dismiss on constitutional grounds. This motion says that the indictment violates his First Amendment right to free speech and his First Amendment right to air his grievances, and that he's already been tried and acquitted for these crimes during his impeachment, and this indictment is tantamount to double jeopardy. Also, he says, quote, finally, because of our country's longstanding tradition of forceful political advocacy regarding perceived fraud and irregularities in numerous presidential elections, President Trump lacked fair notice that his advocacy in this instance could be criminalized. Thus, the court should dismiss it under due process clause as well. What do you think about that? <laughs> it's the, the well-known due process requirement of fair notice in political advocacy. Uh, I don't remember that one from law school. There's a lot of things I don't remember from law school, but definitely don't remember that one. I also feel like he cribbed this whole thing from a Seinfeld episode because as we all know, the the holiday of Festivus is the airing of grievances. Now we have a violation of his First Amendment right to air his grievances. So it's almost like a First Amendment right to Festivus. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think any of this is going anywhere. Nope. But except Again, on, a, up on appeal. appeal. Yeah. Yeah. Bookmarks for appeal. What's the last one? The last one is uh, the fourth motion to dismiss, of course, and it is for selective prosecution. And I quote, President Donald J. Trump respectfully submits this motion to dismiss the charges on the basis of selective and vindictive prosecution. The core conduct alleged in the indictment relating to the presentation of alternate electors has a historical basis that dates back to 1800 and spans at least seven other elections. There are no other prosecutions in American history relating to these types of activities. The allegations in the indictment involve constitutionally authorized activities by President Trump as commander-in-chief. Wow. And as well as speech and expressive conduct protected by the First Amendment. He goes on to say, biased prosecutors pursue charges despite the evidence rather than based on it, with one prosecutor violating DOJ rules and ethical norms by forecasting the investigation in a television interview on 60 Minutes. Even the attorney general felt, quote, boxed in by the onslaught. Joe Biden pressured DOJ to pursue the nakedly political indictment in this case months before the FBI had even opened an investigation. At the very least, even if the special counsel's office makes self-serving arguments in an effort to articulate a defense of the prosecutor's charging decision, where there is none, a hearing is necessary to give President Trump an opportunity to demonstrate that their proffered evidence is pretextual. Hmm. I wonder where, uh, I mean, that just sounds like, 
a bunch of hooey kind of out of nowhere. <laughs> like, what, how do you have evidence Joe Biden pressured the DOJ to pursue the nakedly political indictments months before the FBI opened the investigation? Like, I, I don't I don't understand this at all. But again, like I said, none of these are going to these will all fail. Yeah, uh, I am certain. And they are, again, just appeal placeholders. Um, I'd like to take a quick break from D.C. and tell you about a filing from Jack Smith in the Mar-a-Lago case, because it just came out Friday. And this is my favorite filing of the week. If, if we had an Oscars for court filings, I think this one would win Best Picture for me. All right. It is, it is Jack Smith's filing in response to Donald's motion to delay the entire Florida trial until the end of next year. They've already gone back and forth on this matter a couple of times, and we've, we've reported those filings on previous episodes. But DOJ is responding to Trump's latest complaints about classified discovery and why it should postpone the entire trial until November of next year, at least. Now, I'm going to paraphrase this filing for everyone. So I want you to know, this isn't what Jack Smith said. This is what I'm telling, what I, <laughs> my interpretation of what he's written. The artistic interpretation of the filing, got it. Okay, so first up, Jack Smith says, uh, we had classified discovery ready for you in a skiff down the street from where you live, and you waited 11 days to come and look at it. In fact, we had it ready to go in less than a month after the protective order was issued and seven months ahead of trial. So any delay is y'all's fault. That's mm -hmm. on all y'all. Next, Trump complained, I can't believe you guys gave us an additional 13,584 pages to review just now. This will take us forever. We need a whole new trial date. End of next year. And the DOJ responds in the filing saying, uh, 15 of those pages are new. The other 13,569 are duplicates you had for months. You requested we package them together. And Andy, this is a box uh, that they seized that mm -hmm. had 15 documents classified yep. in it. And the rest, the other 13,000 were unclassified. And so during unclassified discovery, they produced them. Of and then they've already produced the 15, you know, here. Uh, those are the new ones. But Donald Trump's, they specifically asked to have them all together so we can look to see how they were in the box as you found them. Yeah. And so they're like, I can't believe you just dropped this 14,000 pages on us. Like, <laughs> dude, you've had those. The 15 are new. You wanted, you asked for this. You so. had them and then you asked for them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they you asked for them form. this way. <laughs> you, uh, and if you stack them up end to end, they're taller than, you know, whatever. <laughs> then Trump said in a classified briefing submitted from a classified laptop, he said, I need a classified laptop. We must delay the trial because I need a classified laptop. And DOJ said, bro, you have one. You used it just now to submit your complaint about not having one. But we'll give you three more. Now you have four. Now he has four classified laptops. I'm going and to Jack Australia and I need a classified <laughs> laptop to discuss with my friends. My box friends. Yeah. I wonder if the Australian cardboard magnate made the cardboard boxes in which he stole the documents. That would be an awesome moment of, I don't know what, synchronicity or something. <laughs> Now, uh, Jack Smith concludes with this. The defense's allegations about the government's compliance with its discovery obligations are wrong, and its characterization of the discovery record is incorrect and misleading. The government is in full compliance with its discovery obligations to date, having provided prompt and thorough disclosures throughout these proceedings. The discovery record offers the defense no justification to delay the pretrial schedule and the trial of this case. 
Now, Judge Eileen Cannon has scheduled a hearing for this particular set of arguments. This, uh, of course, she has. Um, this, uh, do we delay the trial because I need a I need a laptop and fourteen thousand documents. Uh, that hearing is scheduled for November first, so it's coming up fast. Yeah, November first of twenty three. Because I heard Trump yeah. <laughs> asked for it to be delayed on November first of twenty four. The hearing. Yeah, you got it. You know, in a weird and I, I in a in a weird way, I almost feel bad for Judge Cannon. Because she gets these dueling filings on all these nonsensical issues, and they're they're just like speaking two different languages. They're so different. So reading them, it, you've got to kind of be like, oh my god, what 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 am I supposed? To, this guy says the the sky is black, and this guy says the the sky is white. So, you know, a more more experienced, a little more salty judge would just get these filings and just make a ruling, put it on the record in writing and walk away. Like enough, well, we'll see it enough of in, this. It, we can pair and contrast with what uh, Judge Chutkin is going to do with this flurry of right. motions. Right. You'll see the difference yeah. and it'll be plain as day. Yeah, but she allows, you know, he's setting this tone and this agenda of picking one fight after another over nothing. And she's kind of facilitating it by giving every one of these uh, complaints, you know, a full hearing. I don't know. It's, it's a little concerning. All right. Well, we have a lot more to get to. Well, not a lot more, just one more filing to get to and some listener questions. There's a, a, a link in the show notes, by the way, where you can submit those questions. But we need to take a quick break. So everybody stick around. We'll be right back. Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn-in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane, and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis's first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA. As a first-time lawyer, I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler... How much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary... They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry. We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said, show me in a courtroom how we were at war. Expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is Lawyers, Guns, and Money. So you have a man in Armani suit standing in the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th. Or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. 
There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now. Welcome back. Okay, we have one final filing to discuss, and that's Donald Trump's supplemental brief in support of his motion to dismiss based on presidential monarchy. No, I'm sorry. It's presidential immunity. You'll <laughs> <Same> remember <laughs> You'll remember we went over his initial filing in a previous episode, and then we talked about DOJ's uh, really impressive response. So here's some excerpts from uh, Trump's response to the special counsel's filing. The prosecution argues that presidential immunity does not extend to criminal prosecution of a president for his official acts. The prosecution is wrong. The prosecution argues that recognizing immunity from criminal prosecution would place the president, quote, above the law. Not so. All right, time out. Both of those <laughs> statements are actually correct. Anybody who read that would say the prosecution is right. I mean, it, if it doesn't yeah. place him above the law, I don't know. I don't know what it does. But anyway, okay. I I continue. Uh, as the prosecution recognizes a president is subject to criminal prosecution for one, unofficial conduct or purely private acts, and two, conduct within the scope of his official responsibilities, provided that he is first impeached by the House of Representatives and convicted by the Senate for such conduct. So he's actually arguing that he can't be criminally tried unless the Senate convicts him first. Oh, what about the double jeopardy argument he was making in the other filing? Stop. Don't bring up things that contradict what I just said. Uh, that's okay. The, sorry, sorry. <laughs> you got to think of this like a defense lawyer. What I said five minutes ago is gone. What I want you to focus on is what I said now. <laughs> so the filing goes on to argue that prosecuting President Trump breaches centuries of unbroken tradition. <laughs> of not charging presidents <laughs> that never, because <laughs> you're the first crimey one? Is that? Uh, yeah. Apparently, Trump then argues that because the bulk of Jack Smith's opposition is spent arguing that immunity does not exist, they fail to show that Trump's actions fell outside the outer perimeters of his duty. Hmm. He says that organizing alternate slates of electors is within the outer perimeter of his job as president. His job as president and official county elections supervisor for every county in the in the nation, apparently. As president of crimes. <laughs> Yes. I I just, I can't get beyond this. So, like that first sentence, the prosecution argues that presidential immunity does not extend to criminal prosecution of a president for his official acts. I mean, that is just a legal fact. Yeah. Five, you know, get five lawyers together. They would all agree. That's the current state of the law. The prosecution yeah. argues that recognizing immunity from criminal prosecution would place the president above the law. Of course it would. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's uh, self-evident. There's no law beyond that. <laughs> so if you're, if you're above that, that's it. You're covered. You can't do anything wrong. You can never commit a crime. You can't be prosecuted or placed in jail because you're the king. Yeah, and let me let me respond here because he's basically saying presidents aren't above the law. Former presidents can be criminally prosecuted for unofficial conduct, and conduct within or if it's or if it's official conduct he has to be impeached first and the argument is the shit you did was unofficial conduct my man so you just said we can prosecute you yeah but you know he's arguing that this is uh, official conduct he's saying that fraudulent 
gathering fraudulent slates of electors has been done for years, centuries. Right. Centuries of unbroken precedent. Or, uh, yeah, it's it's hard to make sense of the word salad, but the, the effect is pretty consistent across all the motions. These are basically like opportunities to heave all of his campaign slogans out in court. Oh, yeah. Coming after me, it's all Biden's fault. This is all political. Uh, and, you know, and like we said, put down markers for uh, appeal and slow that slow down the clock. That's essentially it. Yeah, that'll be it. But I don't think Judge Chutkin is going to let the clock slow down. Um, Judge Cannon, on the other hand, again, we can compare and contrast when when the decisions and consideration on these motions comes down. That's right. That's right. So we'll watch. We'll watch. Watch and learn the difference. Um, so what do we have for listener questions this week, Andy? You know, we have we have a good one. And um, there was, of course, a development this week that I think is also relevant to this question. And there's a couple things about this that I feel like have kind of been overlooked in the conversation publicly about all this stuff. So what I'm referring to, of course, are the guilty pleas down in Georgia. And the question, which uh, unfortunately came without a name attached to it, but... Uh, you know who you are out there and well done. The question is, does Sidney Powell's Georgia plea deal require her to cooperate in federal election trials as well as in the Georgia one? And will the federal prosecutors be able to leverage her Georgia confession uh, to compel her to, to do so or to cooperate? No and yes. There you go. That's the short answer. So <laughs> n- no, Georgia can't cut a deal with her that requires her to do something in any other jurisdiction. It's kind of like the reverse of what we were talking about in the immunity context at the beginning of the show. Um, Can federal prosecutors use her uh, statements against her to charge her or to, or to, if after, if she's charged to convict her and on the federal level, they can, but it's more complicated than it seems. There's actually a really good article in the New York times about this this week. Any, public statement. So if she takes the stand in Georgia and says things on the record in court, those statements they can have, they can use in their own court proceedings, no problem. The more important stuff sometimes is what she says to investigators in Georgia, because she had to be interviewed by investigators in Georgia and presumably had to tell them everything she knows about all this stuff. I hope they required her to do that. Can they get those statements from Georgia and then use them in their investigation or charging or convicting Powell? It's questionable. It's not illegal, but it requires a certain degree of coordination between the federal federal prosecutors and the state prosecutors. There's really no indication that there's a lot of coordination going on between them. Fonnie Willis has said that they're, they're operating entirely independently. Well, this is kind of like how Tish James took all of her interviews for the civil fraud trial and gave them to the Manhattan district attorney to use, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's an example of them kind of working it out. But there was no federal, there was no federal thing involved in that. That was state to state. Right. This is federal states, a little trickier. And there's a timing element. Like Mm -hmm. Fonnie Willis is not going to want to be handing over statements of witnesses she expects to use in her trial she doesn't want to hand those statements over to another prosecutor in a different jurisdiction who might go first, who might get that statement, release that statement in some sort of judicial proceeding, and then it tips off the defendants in Fonnie Willis's trial as to what they need to worry about. So there's all kinds of trial tactics there. This is why federal prosecutors, they always, if there is a witness 
that both the feds and the state want to use, the feds always demand that they, their trial goes first and the state has to wait because you never want to use this witness and the statements last. So there's some embedded obstacles to cooperation between Georgia and Jack Smith on this one. And finally, the thing that really still kind of amazes me about all these Georgia pleas, and we now, of course, have Ken Cheesebro, and more significantly, we have uh, Jenna Ellis, who pled this week as well. They're not cooperation agreements in the way that you understand cooperation on the federal level. They're almost backwards. In the federal level, you get charged with a bunch of crimes. You want to cooperate. You come in. You cut a deal. And the deal is they drop a bunch of the felonies, but they keep a couple. And the ones that they keep could expose you still to serious sentence time. And you have to cooperate then. You plead guilty to a smaller number of crimes, and then you cooperate. You have to testify in every trial. You have to be interviewed, do whatever they ask. And when all that's done, then they bring you into court to sentence you on your case. And if you've done well, if you've cooperated legitimately and provided good information, they ask the judge to depart downward on your sentence. Rule 35... Yes. Or a yes, K letter. So, yeah. What are the K, what are those? It's called a 5K1 letter. Back 5K1 in the day, letter. my old days, when we used to actually have real sentencing guidelines that require judges to sentence you within the guidelines. <laughs> when the time came for sentencing, if you were a cooperator, the prosecutors would give the judge a 5K1 letter laying out the cooperation you did and the receipt of that letter statutorily empowered the judge to go beneath the guidelines. Now the guidelines are just advisory, so it's a little different. But... Anyway, in Georgia, they basically give the deal away up front. They drop all the felonies, charge you with a misdemeanor, which you're not going to do any time, agree to let you into the first offender program, agree to say none of your crimes involve moral turpitude and therefore can't be used in a follow-on proceeding against you as a lawyer to remove your license. I mean, you get all this benefit immediately. So if these, def- if the- it's not clear to me what happens if Sidney Powell or any of the rest of them take the stand in Georgia and claim the fifth, which they might really want to do because by testifying in Georgia to their own misdeeds, they expose themselves to criminal liability in the federal case. So there are some really weird embedded risks here for the defendants and we're going to have to see how that plays out. It has impacts on Jack Smith's ability to use these people as defendants or to charge them and try to turn them into cooperators. And it really poses some risk uh, to the defendants. Yeah. And some other considerations too, though. I think uh, Kenneth Chesbro and Jenna Ellis pled guilty to one felony each. It was did, just yeah. uh, Sidney Powell who went first that got him knocked down to misdemeanors. But Jenna Ellis's is a little bit different than the others. The others just gave their one proffer up front, wrote their apology letter, pay their fine, and they're, they're good to go. Uh, and they do have to testify in any and all proceedings. Right. But Jenna Ellis's actually says, we want more interviews. You have to make yourself available for as many proffer sessions and interviews as we want, along with everything else that was in everybody else's deal. Um, but I, I think I get what you're saying, because if there were no other places in the United States where they were on the hook for crimes, they wouldn't be able to plead the fifth because you can only plead the fifth when you are in danger of being indicted. Correct. And if, if they got full immunity down in Georgia, which they have, and that was the only thing they were facing, they wouldn't be able to plead the fifth, but because they potentially face other charges in 
federal court or any, maybe in other jurisdictions. Who knows what Arizona is going to do? Who knows what Michigan is yeah, going to do? Good point. Because they're, they are potentially on the hook there, then you should be able to plead the fifth because you are still on the hook for criminal uh, liability. So we'll see. It's, it raises a lot of questions like, how do these lawyers think about this? They're the defense attorneys who steered them into these deals. Do they, do they acknowledge to their clients, like, you are taking a huge you know, leap of faith. We, as we talked about this last week, I said, like, you're basically putting yourself in a position where if, if you're Sidney Powell and Jack Smith charges you, you kind of have to cooperate up there because chances are between cooperating with Fannie Willis, getting a hand of your statements, or just the, using the testimony that you gave in court, you're in a, you're in a tough spot. You're in a really bad case. Uh, and cooperation might be your only way to limit your uh, exposure. But We'll have to see. Yeah, we also have to think about the timing, too. You know, you and I have posited that perhaps the reason that Sidney Powell at all the other uh, unindicted co-conspirators haven't been charged yet is because he's going to run those as mop-up cases after he finishes the Trump trial to keep it clean and fast. But now, if you think about, because normally, the, like you said, the feds would just charge her and push her to either cooperate and go down to one felony and do the thing. But if they're not ready to charge her yet, they can't do that. And right. then is she going to be testifying in Georgia before she is charged, if she's going to be charged in federal court? So there's that consideration, too, the timing consideration. Do we go ahead and charge them all now and, you know, risk them filing motions to glom on to the, you know, hang on to the coattails yeah. of the Donald Trump uh, trial and, and slow that whole thing down or or do we wait and hope that we're still going to go first? You know, because it could happen that once this trial is over, the trial still hasn't happened in Georgia because, you know, you got to remember, he's got a yeah. May trial. He's got another thing. So maybe, you know, maybe then Jack Smith thinks he'll still have time to go first. Sure. Either that or he looks at it the other way and he says, you know what? I don't care. None of these people are as significant as Trump. I'm doing what I got to do to get the Trump case over the threshold. And if it means I can't go back and charge any of these people, then so be it. I don't know. Yeah, but then you would you would have Fonnie Willis saying, "Well, let them off the hook so that they can, tr you know, testify truthfully down here for me." Yeah. Unless Fonnie Willis is like, "I don't care. I just wanted oh. to get rid of the speedy trials." <laughs> right. <You know? laughs> I don't care what they do. Take them. Yeah, crazy. Yeah. But oh, the, it's a pretty simple uh, and well phrased question, but it opens up this whole hornet's nest of issues <laughs> that I think. People are kind of doing the victory dance, you know, the touchdown dance over these pleas. Oh, they're cooperators. They're going to sink, sink Trump. Um, and it is a good thing. It's a great thing for Fonnie Willis. I think in the, in the long run, I think it can be a good thing for Jack Smith as well. But there's a lot of embedded hurdles here, mm. which it'll be interesting to watch uh, how we get over those. Yep, a lot of considerations. All right, this has been another over hour long episode and we did the best we could to get all of the filings and minute orders and news of the week in there. So thank you for uh, hanging in there for this long episode. We appreciate you very, very much. Yes. Um, do you have any final thoughts before we get out of here? Again, if you have a question, send it to us. There's a link in the show notes. Yeah, keep those questions coming in because it's always very helpful to read those. And of course, we love doing one on the air. And uh, there's a lot going on right now, a lot kind of uh, in this week that's just behind us and um, everything overseas in Israel. And then, of course, this week in, uh, in Maine, uh, another horrible mass shooting in America. And so hang in there. Be good to yourselves. Think about kind of taking a break from the news every now and then. 
only after you've listened to the podcast, but if, but anyway, these are uh, challenging times and I uh, uh, hope everybody's kind of, you know, focused a little bit on themselves and their own mental health and, uh, and taking advantage of opportunities to do that. Yeah. And I know you're going to go do some hits this afternoon about what happened in Maine and uh, on behalf of uh, the MSW media team and this podcast uh, and myself, I'm just, my heart and all of my thoughts and all of my love and all of my support goes out to the community of Lewiston, the families, the the um, the first responders, the people who work in the hospital, uh, the friends, the relatives, uh, the, uh, just all of that to you right now, all of that love, all that support. I wish I could give you uh, a giant hug and I hope that I hope this is enough. Um, uh, I don't know what Congress will end up doing, uh, but I hope it's I hope it's something. And did you see Jared Golden actually change his position on assault weapons bans uh, during the press conference in Maine? Yeah, that was kind of remarkable. Kind of remarkable. Susan Collins didn't, but uh, yeah, but he sure that did. And, and I, <laughs> but she, she's never. He did, and that was it. Was good to see. Like the guy who seemed to really be kind of like thinking and changing his position based on the grief and the mourning and the the horror that's that's now inflicted his, his you know hit upon his community if that's what it takes i mean if that's what it takes we're on our way because we're because pretty soon there's not going to be a, a community in this country that hasn't experienced this uh horrendous uh and 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 largely preventable violence and i hope other congress people take note and don't wait until it happens in their communities to change their positions yeah agree Agreed. Anyway, just wanted to mention that. So thank you, Andy, for doing that work and, and doing those hits and talking about um, talking about that on TV. I appreciate you. Yeah. You know, you try to kind of shed some light and let people know what's going on. Sometimes that can be hard to follow. So uh, it's hard hard to watch because, you know, my, my uh, inclination is to be on the other side of this and be helping out with the manhunt. But if this is a, a small way that I can help, then I'm, I'm, of course, happy to do that. So anyway, have a great week, everyone. Yep. And uh, uh, please take care. Like Andy said, I've been Allison Gill. And I'm Andy McCabe. Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis's first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA, as a first-time lawyer, I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler... How much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary... They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry. We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said, show me in a courtroom how we were at war. 
expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is lawyers, guns, and money. So you have a man in Armani suit standing on the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th. Or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now.